to the new Black Society podcast with Nate Wilson, providing key insights to the most important stories affecting the Black community. Here's your host, Nate Wilson. Welcome to the new Black Society podcast, episode three. I'm your host, Nathan Wilson. And we got a special, special, special guest, my guy, the definition of a successful entrepreneur, and that's putting it lightly. He's had four digital businesses acquired, and they weren't cheap acquisitions. He's born and bred in Chicago. He's flashy. He's on his way to dropping a podcast himself. My guy, serial entrepreneur Donald Spann. How you doing, man? Pretty good. Pretty good, man. Happy to be on here. Fantastic. All right. So I was reading a little bit about you. I mean, we've been friends for a minute uh, via Facebook, via social media. We've spoken Mm -hmm. a few times. I was looking at your uh, bio. I literally thought I was going to be talking to myself today because you you wrote down that uh, the book that changed your life uh, was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. True or false? Yeah, yeah, that's correct, man. I was uh, about 16 years old. I don't know how old you are. We're about the same age, right? 84? Yeah, yeah, 84. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I was born nice, in January nice. of 84. Okay, I'm August, so uh, feel free to teach me some things about life. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, when uh, when we were about 16, uh, I stumbled across uh, with their poor dad. And, you know, I grew up in a somewhat unique experience for a black person, I would say, um, you know, Grew up in Chicago, middle class, um, you know, still with some level of privilege, uh, but certainly a middle class, like, you know, no inheritance type uh, situation, right? right? But I went to a, uh, a very wealthy private school. Um, so did I, which, Donald, so did I. Okay. Nice, nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, you know, in order to go there, we were on like the whole financial aid thing. Um, and so through that, you know, I'm sure you understand. I had experiences of uh, seeing the spectrum of uh, of lifestyles and, and what was possible from from an early age, uh, kindergarten all the way through high school. And so through that, um, you know, I, I was obviously on a trajectory, and you don't really think about much what the trajectory is, especially when we were young and we didn't have social media telling us all kinds of different things we could do. So when I saw the book, uh, you know, one of the main things I think that stuck out was uh, what my rich dad told me that my poor dad did not. Right. And one of my uh, best friends at the time, uh, uh, her, her dad was uh, also an Asian guy and, and very rich. Um, and he sort of looked like <laughs> the author. <laughs> he looked like Robert Kaisaki. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I was, I was literally thinking to myself, man, it's sort of like uh, uh, Mr. Lee, his, his, if he were to write a book for me. Uh, so I dove right in. And upon reading it, my mind was blown, right? I'd never read anything like that before in terms of, you know, just challenging the status quo of what is the typical trajectory supposed to be in terms of what our schooling essentially is telling us and uh, what the possibilities are when you challenge that and and go down another path. So I think at that point, uh, that sold the seeds of me, you know, just wanting to have a different path, but not being certain on what it would be yet at the time. 
Yeah. So you were you read it a little bit earlier than I did. I was 21 when I read Rich Dad Poor Dad. I was actually really pissed off, and it was because um, <laughs> because and I'll tell you why I was pissed off, uh, Donald. Because I had a mentor in college, and um, as I was leaving, it was like my last day there, and uh, he handed me the book, and he had like literally like tears in his eyes, and he's not usually an emotional dude, but he was mm-hmm. he, he handed me the book, and. Um, no, actually, he didn't hand me the book. He just told me about it. And he was like, look, mm-hmm. he's like, if there's anything, like, I've run my mouth to you for, you know, four years. So as long as I've known you, I've run my mouth to you. I don't know if you hear or you're going to listen to anything I say. But if there's one thing I want you to do when you get back to back home to Philadelphia, where I'm from, when you get back home, read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And then, and then like, tears started coming in his eyes. He was like, uh, if there's anything, I wish I could have read this book when I was like 15, 16 years old. There's mm. no telling where I would be in my life. I was like, my God, I've got to read this book. If, if the man has tears in his eyes, I've got to read it. So the Absolutely. first day I get back home, Donald, I go to my aunt's house and her boyfriend actually has that book sitting on the coffee table. I'm like, I got to borrow this book. And he was mm. like, yeah, yeah, no problem. I read that book literally that night, cover to cover. Wow. Blew my mind. It was like the most impactful book I've ever read. Like, can you say the same thing? Is that, is that like probably up there, top two, top three books you've ever read? Well, so the way I say it is there have been at this point uh, four books that have been sort of uh, inflection points in my mindset. Right, okay. they've been game changers, and with that, with the first, yes, the first, yeah. the first, it, it's at the top. I don't think there's any book, even like that book probably came out in what, like '97. Like that book is over twenty something years old, and I still think yeah. it's probably up there, the top book that I've ever read. Just because, um, like you said, like I was angry after I read it because I was like, how did I not know this? Like, what have I yeah. been learning the first 21 years of my life? Uh, it, it, now I'm learning something new. It is aggravating because it's like, <laughs> you know, again, now we're in a situation where if you start to look a little bit, there's so much information that we can find that says, yo, there's a different way. Right. Um, it takes some initiative, obviously, but especially if you go to like a top school where you're, uh, you know, associated with people that are able to live extraordinary lifestyles and sort of point you in the right direction anyway, right? Right. Um, you know, it, it's just completely different now. So I think the whole, you know, we have what we think is possible. Uh um, and then all of a sudden, it's just it, it, that wall or that uh, room of, of uh, thought processes about what is available just gets knocked the F down and you start to see the whole house. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, exactly. Exactly. And, and I think you're talking about something that I think the audience will appreciate because it's, a, it's an insight that not a lot of people have. And that's just being an African-American man or a boy at that point 
and coming from a middle-class neighborhood, but then going to a private school where, you know, I mean, my classmates, you know, they own businesses, they had homes where the driveways were bigger than my block. Like, mm -hmm. it was just incredible. You get exposed to this, like this lifestyle and you get to see what's available to you that I think somebody who doesn't have an opportunity to go to that type of school does. Like, do you yeah. feel like that's a big impact on, you know, where you've gone today as an entrepreneur? Yeah, and in all seriousness, uh, so, you know, with these schools, they're pretty small, so we're pretty close to the people. You know, if you had a good time, you're generally going to be pretty close to these people long afterwards, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so we still, especially with COVID, we've had Zoom calls uh, every two weeks where a bunch of us hop on. And on our last call, uh, you know, I spent a good time saying that it cannot be understated how important it was to have a different set of standards. Um, I didn't, you know, I didn't have concrete uh, numbers or, or, uh, or thoughts about what exactly those standards should be, but mm -hmm. my baseline was so much higher. Right. So if I was like, well, the entry level job, what I find to be acceptable is a certain amount. Right. Baseline was higher. So if I set my goals, like my dream type goals, uh, starting off with a higher baseline, well, now my goals are higher. Um, and so the work that I'm putting in, even if I, I fall short of my goals, I'm still going to end up much further ahead than the person that has a smaller baseline to begin with. Absolutely. Shoot, shoot for the stars, land in the, you know, in the clouds uh, yep. type of mentality. No, I can totally relate. Uh, even down to the, like the type of colleges that not only, first of all, it was a, for, it wasn't a foregone conclusion. You're going to college, but mm -hmm. it was like the type of schools you're going to like a state school. Oh my God. Like I couldn't mm -hmm. imagine unless it's like one of the top, one of the top ones. Uh, but yeah, the baseline, that's, that's really interesting. Um, you know, just having a high level of uh, a standard, as you mentioned. Uh, you mentioned you had, there was four books. Uh, you said Rich Dad, Poor Dad was one of them. What's the other three? I'm very curious to know. So, yeah, um, you know what? I'm actually blanking on the fourth one, so maybe it's not as impactful as I can remember. But uh, <laughs> Okay. okay. Well, oh, I got it. I got it. I got it. <laughs> um, okay. So, so Rich Dad, Poor Dad is, uh, poor dad is the, the big one. Mm -hmm. um, the second one was the four-hour work week, actually, by Tim Ferriss. Um, that took me away from, oh, I want to have a business, to I want to be a lifestyle entrepreneur, and this speak to me in that regard. Um, the third one was uh, would never split the difference. Hmm. Um, that book by uh, this FBI, he was the head of interrogation for the FBI or maybe with the CIA for several years. Um, and he wrote a book essentially on how you can use the power of negotiation in any context, really. Uh, regular conversations, your working environment, whatever. Okay. Um, it's just very incredible. And then finally, uh, a book that is not really a self-help book. It's called Sapiens. I've been recommending it left and right, uh, as in Homo sapiens. It's a brief history of humankind. Um, the great thing about this book is that it's an unbiased, and I know it sounds weird me 
with me saying that, but when you read it, it makes sense. Uh, it's an unbiased approach to uh, what we know about the formation and history of our species. Hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it gets down to what I consider to be sort of like brass tacks. It's, it's brutal, honest. It's brutally honest in terms of uh, why is it that humans do things the way they do? And what are some of the pitfalls of that? Mm. And so from a psychological perspective, uh, very eye-opening. Um, and it's, you know, the way that it will impact you and how you do things is going to be specific to the person. But for me, uh, you know, again, it's one of those things that enabled me to change my mindset and a little bit uh, allow me to really take a good, more accurate look as to why I'm doing certain things, why I want a business, why I want to make a certain amount of money and those types of things. Okay, so first and foremost, now I'm convinced we might be related after you've given that. <laughs> because the four-hour work week by Tim Ferriss is also, it goes in my top five for sure. I have it as number three. Uh, nice. That book changed the absolute game for me. I stumbled upon that at a bookstore. That kind of just opened up the whole idea of the laptop millionaire, the laptop, you know, business. Because, um, you know, it's not necessarily always about running a, a massive corporation with right. hundreds of employees looking to uh you know get listed on the stock exchange sometimes it's just about finding your tribe uh getting a few thousand dedicated clients or mm -hmm. or customers that will consistently buy from you and creating mm -hmm. a lifestyle business and a lifestyle all your own uh so yes tim ferris 100 percent agree four hour work week um and, and then Sapiens, you missed it. That's uh, Yuval Harari, am I right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yep. that's the author. You, yeah, Sapiens is a book that I have not read, but I've seen it on a couple lists. And I have it on my uh, Amazon cart. Wish list. Yes, nice. wish list of cards. So now that's going to get purchased tonight uh, because you, <laughs> said it's, you said so. And then um, help me again. What was the other one? Never Split the Difference. Yeah. That mm -hmm. was uh, Chris Voss, I think. Yeah, correct. Oh, man. let me tell you, I've seen it. I've seen it. But that book, I have not heard too much about. But now, mm -hmm. I, now I'm really interested in doing that one. Uh, let me ask you, are readers leaders? Do you, read, or do you believe in the myth you need to read, you know, X amount of books per year? The billion, average billionaire reads like 50 books a year. Is it really relevant or is it just maybe something different i don't subscribe to things like that right i i think uh if there had to be a trait a pretty accurate uh generalized trait as the people that are highly successful is that they work on things that allow them to expand themselves so mm. whether that's reading uh like specific books whether that's more recently, you know, listening to podcasts, whether that's the Wall Street Journal or whatever, there's got to be some type of source that they are turning to, to sort of expand themselves and, and break through their barriers, uh, expand in their comfort zone, because without that, there isn't growth. If someone is born rich and they stay in that same sort of situation without getting any richer, 
we can't really say that they're successful. They're mm. just maintaining. Right. But uh, the majority of the time, in order to really, uh, like, you know, create uh, a level of achievement that you haven't had before, it takes uh, abandoning yourself. So a commitment to that, I think it's a prerequisite. And I think you'll find that trait amongst people that are highly successful. I agree. I agree. So, I mean, also, let's talk about your outliers as well. You know, coming from big cities, uh, I'm from Philadelphia. Uh, mm-hmm. which is a pretty big city on the East Coast. It's like, I think, fourth or fifth biggest city in the country. Definitely the second biggest on the East Coast behind New York. Um, we're like a 90-minute drive away. It's, you know, but it is what it is. Like, it's a major city. And then you're mm-hmm. from Chicago. Uh, Th- which is third largest. City. Third largest. Yeah, third little, largest. A little more major. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um Absolutely. I'm going to have to say yes. I mean, it, it represents the Midwest. Um, talk about like growing up in Chicago and kind of how it shaped your mindset as an entrepreneur. Were there certain markers or there certain places or, uh, or is it like an entrepreneur hub down there in Chicago? What's it like? Well, in all seriousness, from a tech perspective, uh, Chicago is way... I mean, they're way below their punching weight in terms of uh, what you would think Chicago would be uh, in terms of like, you know, like startup capital, startup investment, uh, and the entire industry. Of course, Mm. it exists, and of course, it's solid, but like Austin is far more significant. Denver's is more significant. Uh, Clearly, anywhere in Silicon Valley, New York area is more significant. Um, and so, you know, it's not exactly the place for that. What I will say is that Chicago has been a, a great place. Now, it's in a bubble, but I went to Wisconsin-Madison uh, for school. Okay. And uh, Badgers. I'm a Badger, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so the big thing is uh, I, I realized the baseline philosophy that I have uh, upon – just interacting with people usually from smaller towns or maybe from like Milwaukee or something general generally Wisconsinites and Uh getting a sense of just regular conversations oh this is what I want to do this is what I want to do and uh there were certain situations where someone would say oh yeah you know if I come out making like 35 40 grand like you know I'm I'm doing really (laughs) well there you know I'm I'm, I'm doing good I'm doing and you know, there's, I can't knock that, right? But I also never saw myself as someone that would be excited about that. Um, and I don't know. I, I mean, you know, there were just these random, like, conversations that weren't at all really significant in and of themselves. But once you have that pattern, you're realizing that there's a difference, right? Yeah, yeah. And so while sure. in... And so while I'm with Wisconsin and Madison, the people, I was there for like nine years after leaving school and all that, uh, working random sales jobs, uh, sales management. Um, and, you know, when I would do things and try to achieve things, the people that were around me in Madison weren't really doing that much. And mm-hmm. so when I got back to Chicago, uh, that was the day actually that I went full time uh, with a company with one of my buddies from high school. And actually day one of coming back to Chicago in 2012, uh, I've been a full-time ever since. 
And oh, full time in terms of being an entrepreneur. Yeah, full time since then. And um, I, I get the big thing is that again, um, there was the sort of private school thing, but also Chicago it just seems like people hustle a little bit harder. Um, and so when I had a situation where, you know, I'm thinking I'm doing okay, well, I would get a sense of the people around me that are hustling a bit harder, doing a little bit better, and now I'm pushing that much harder. Right, right. No, I, I completely understand. Um, so, yeah, I'm asking that kind of question just to, to, to make a comparison in my mind. I know that coming from Philly, it is, I think it's a pretty sizable tech hub. I think the fact that we're in between New York and D.C. kind of gives us mm -hmm. some sort of a leverage um, mm -hmm. so you've got a, a tech conscious scene here, but it's not like a tech destination. It's not a San Francisco uh, and Austin or Denver, like you mentioned. Um, but right. I think before I talk about your entrepreneurship trajectory, you're still in Chicago now. It, mm -hmm. Do you feel like you need to be in a certain space or a place to reach your highest potential as an entrepreneur? Or do you feel like you could just do it anywhere? I can do it anywhere. The only thing that matters for me is that I'm happy uh, in terms of my environment. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, I live in sort of like my dream place and uh, I'm driving what I want. And so that sort of uh, allows me to be happy with my circumstances. And so in that regard, uh, I'm happy to stay here and continue that and, and just sort of do my thing. Um, if I were in a place that I didn't like that much or I was frustrated, it would probably change the way I uh, go about my, my, my next project or my venture or whatever I'm working on. Okay, got you, okay. So you don't, like, it's really about your happiness, your environment, it's, how, it's really about how you feel and what works for you. And you're right. saying that Chicago works for you. Yeah, it does. I mean, you know, there's certainly places I'm considering. I'm getting sick of this weather. But, That's you know. what I'm saying. Like, I was wondering. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the reality, too, man, and, you know, you're a family man. Mm -hmm. uh, I got a wife, and the wife wants, she's, like, leaning towards wanting to stay in Chicago. And oh. So, you know, happy wife, happy life. <laughs> That's right. That's absolutely right. No, I, I can totally agree with that like my wife wants to stay in the uh in the northeast she's mm -hmm. she's fine with dc philly jersey new york type of thing but she doesn't want to leave so right. basically that means i just have to buy more pea coats and uh <laughs> you know and suvs with uh you know all four-wheel drive tires so let's talk yeah, about just, just the, stay away from the minivan and you're all good oh yeah all as long listen no minivans and i'm not even going to do the hybrids either you can forget it. Nope. Like, I don't want it. I don't want anything that looks like a, a minivan. We're just not going to do it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, all right. So, look, you just recently sold a company uh, a little while ago. You got acquired, I should say. Um, that's an extraordinary accomplishment. Uh, can you just kind of build up? You've been an entrepreneur now for eight years full time. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you talk about the first day you decided to really go for it full time, where were you in that space? <laughs> well, uh, you know, honestly, it's sort of embarrassing. Uh, you know, I, I broke up with an ex the day I came back. 
And so it was a, it was a nice little segue into it. I started uh-huh. working on it. <laughs> I started working on this project with a, a again a buddy of mine from high school a few months prior to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I had a little bit of cash saved and uh the day that it happened, um, you know, it, it wasn't this like comfortable situation, right? Like a, a lot of people, especially uh people that are, I don't know, a bit more uh less risky. They'll work their jobs, they'll save up, and once they have a certain amount of cushion, they'll like sort of slowly <laughs> get off the mm-hmm. runway and, and start the entrepreneurial uh, full-time yeah. journey. For me, uh, you know, I had a, a tiny bit of cushion, but not much at all. Um, I'm moving in with my mom, uh, and I have no salary. And mm. this was a venture-funded company called Rentobo. Uh, we had, we were developing a software for do it yourself, uh, rental landlords, as well as brokers for rental properties from one unit all the way up to whatever, uh, you could manage the entire rental cycle online. And Hmm. so there were products like that, that existed for, uh, enterprise level, like property management companies, hundreds of units, thousands of units, but in terms of the one unit. Uh, and above, uh, you know, starting at one unit people, there wasn't a like fully comprehensive product that exists. And that market is 55% of the rental market. So it was a big opportunity. Damn. Uh, and so again, we were venture funded. We were a Y Combinator company, toughest incubator out of uh, Silicon Valley. And mm-hmm. uh, the premise was that we were going to raise some more money and I start taking a small salary in like probably three months after I, uh, linked up and man it had to be uh probably april of 2012. um but then we didn't do that so i went 18 months actually with zero salary or distributions or anything really? um, how long 18 months <laughs> 18 months with no salary 18 months the only thing that happened was uh, after a few months uh moved out of my mom's place into a buddy place shared a bedroom I'm sorry, had a bedroom in a three-bedroom apartment for $350 a month, which was incredible, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Decent place, decent, you know, neighborhood. Uh, And so I couldn't really afford that, really. So we built that at the Chicago office expense because the company was headquartered in San Francisco. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So that, that was my compensation for 18 months. Um, which was fine because again, you know, I'm in as an equity holder of the company as partnership mm-hmm. and, uh, I'm, you know, trying to work the dream. So the way that I sustained myself was actually sports betting and poker. <laughs> what? Wait, wait a minute. Yep. Sports betting and poker. Sports so you would work poker. on the business during the day and then you would what go to the casino or something at night? Oh, this was all online. Oh, you did online. So you, you did online betting at night mm-hmm. and then you worked on the business during the day and you, and you used your night hustle betting on sports to, well, to make your money? I, yeah, and honestly, it was intermittent, right? So uh, I was doing these things during the day and at night. Um, and I wasn't making a lot of money, you know? <laughs> it's crazy, right? I wasn't making a lot of money. I probably averaged like $1,500, $2,000 a month or something. 
Um, but I had like a small little bankroll and I was lucky enough not to screw it up. Uh, but that's how I ate, man. That's, that's how we did it. Now, hold on now. Now, this is, <laughs> hold on. <laughs> I was not expecting to hear that one. Now, nope. I, you know, I actually saw you mention that in, I think, one of your groups, one of the groups that I'm in. And I was mm -hmm. like, no, I don't, I'm not even, I don't believe that. But no, you really did that. I really what, did that. What did you bet on? Like, what specifically were you betting on? Uh, you know, like NFL. I mean, whatever was available, right? So you were baseball guessing the lines. Season, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, baseball season is the toughest. Yeah, uh, that's day to day. I mean, it's just extremely difficult. So it's more poker during those times. But NFL, uh, there was a couple good years around those time too, in terms of the predict the predictability of certain games. Uh, mm -hmm. Like the Packers were killing it back then, and you know it was very predictable. And then college basketball and, and NBA was pretty solid. Uh, and then, yeah, you know, I would just, if I didn't find any good lines, then I'd play some poker. If I had a crappy poker day, I'd lay off of that for a few days and uh, focus more on some finding some bets that would work. And you were still bringing in 1500 to $2,000 a month. Yeah. And, you know, frankly, uh, <laughs> <My man. laughs> well, the crazier thing is, in 2008 and 2009, I actually, I did play poker for a living. Really? Tell me what that was like. That was cool. Uh, it, it allowed me to uh, figure out that I, it really sealed in the whole premise of wanting to be a lifestyle entrepreneur. Uh, mm -hmm. Because during those two years, I was a complete nomad, right? So uh, able to sort of go wherever, I spent three months in Chiang Mai. I spent time in South America. Really? Uh, time all over Europe. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's like a free-flowing whatever person. I made a lot more money, like you know, closer to six figures uh, during those two years. And wow. So, yeah. So it was, it was a very uh, sort of eye-opening, but also extremely free experience. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it really ruined me in terms of trying to go back into the job world. And of so, course. you know, I spent a total of 11 months back at jobs, and, and that was it for me. <laughs> I, well, see, first of all, I know you have no kids telling that story. Well, you didn't at that time. Am I right? But what, what was that? No, I, I said I know you don't have any kids. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, there's no, no uh, yeah see, that, that's. That's the difference. Now, see, that's the difference. Because <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't have done. But you know what? If you ask my wife now, she'll tell me. I actually did. I didn't do what you did, Donald, but I definitely took my year or two years to, like, take massive risks. And I wasn't, mm -hmm. like, I didn't do gambling. Like, I actually did, like, different things, like, just different, like, entrepreneur things that I did. I was really heavy into, um, uh, market research really like these focus oh groups. oh yeah i used to do and they're, they're huge in chicago huge in chicago there's a ton of focus groups in chicago oh yeah oh yeah uh, you know, <laughs> they did. okay you did a few yeah so i feel like the the focus group capitals and for for the audience listening you know focus groups these little things you find them on craigslist you might find them on twitter uh, you sign up for them and they're like these these groups where you can get paid a hundred, hundred fifty, two hundred dollars to talk about anything from deodorant to a new line of water to yep. you know 
Yeah, to whatever. A, 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 a conceptual sandwich on the KFC's menu that it, they're thinking about. Right. Right, a conceptual sandwich or KFCs. I think one of the best ones is a, a new video game that was coming out, mm. and um, I got to play video games for like two hours, and they paid me like two fifty. I mean, nice. it was it was nice. So I actually got on this hustle, and um, I started doing like as many focus groups as I could. I started like calling up the focus group offices, saying, you know, I'm going to offer great value. You should pick me. Think of me for your next study. Yada yada. Next thing you know, I'm doing like three, four of them a week. And they're paying uh -huh. like an average of like $200 a pop. So yeah. I'm, I'm like going and like between Philly and New York, which is like, like I said, 90 miles up the road, like mm -hmm. New York would have a whole bunch, of, whole bunch of them. Philly would have a whole bunch of them. Sometimes DC would have a whole bunch of them. So between those three cities, like I was eating. And then yeah. it turned into like a commercial for me. And then, you know, I just started going all over the place. But, you know, with a family, I had to be a little bit more conservative with my stuff. But the fact, like, the fact that you were like poker and it, you get to what I call psychologically unemployable. Like, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> you, yeah. You just can't go back. Yeah. And you really. And you probably I don't know I don't know if you know this, but I actually dropped out of college too. Did you? Um, yeah, I did, because I was so sort of uh, confident about the fact that my end goal was never going to be a job. Hmm. I was hmm. just so certain about that, uh, and I also my summer after freshman year of college, I uh, took a job selling knives for Carco Vector Marketing. If you can remember no. that. First of all, we're twins now. <laughs> <laughs> Donald, I I didn't graduate either. Fun oh, wow. fact: okay. I mean, I didn't either. And my first summer job in college was selling knives for Cutco. See, which is very interesting. This is hey, ridiculous. <laughs> it is. It, it is a little. It's a little spooky. It's a little spooky. So I'm gonna take it that you finished top two top three in sales you had to yeah i was number one out of the 1200 in my <laughs> office that summer <laughs> number one number so one. did they did they have the um back then did, i don't know which year you did it did they have the uh did they invite you to the conference yeah there was you know there was the year-end thing uh yep. where they give you the rolex and uh there was a sword for the for the manager's office that did pretty good yeah. A million and you got a short. Yeah, the whole nine, man. And but, after so that, I probably saw you and uh we didn't even know each other. That's really interesting. Very yeah, interesting. that's possible. possible. It's, it's it's possible for sure. So Yeah. So do you remember uh Henry Weinecker? Yes. Yeah, that was, that was my guy. He was uh, you know, great personality with front for a while. And I tried to work on a few things with him and that never worked out. <laughs> <laughs> Now that's interesting. That is that <laughs> we talk about. Oh man! Uh, but yeah, that, those were good times. I did it one summer. Then I did another company whose name I just can't think of. And it was like some wholesale retailing or something like that. That was fun. Mm. So yeah, I, I think that's that's really really interesting that you did that. Okay, so you started. Um, 
when did you start Vicky Virtual? Like, tell us about so, how you got into that. Yeah, so uh, so I'll back up a bit. So essentially, in uh, in in 2012, I joined Montobo, right? Uh, oh. And we were working on that. After about oh, almost two years, we got to the point where uh, my sort of day-to-day -day load was almost non-existent. I really didn't have to do much anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, naturally, I started looking for other stuff to do. So I stumbled across Rohan Giltz and his uh, cleaning business post uh, towards uh, really the middle of 2013. Um, and we ended up doing our first cleaning as a company companion made uh, in January of 2014. Um, and so in, towards the end of the first year, uh, we were already like a six figure company oh. and we got to the point where we were sick of answering the phone. Mm -hmm. Um, and so with that in mind, I started looking into options for, you know, just getting our calls answered. Uh, and during my Rentobo days, I had come across, cause we considered it didn't do then didn't do it. I came across a company called uh, Gabby Bill, uh, which I thought was really freaking cool. Uh, and I sort of like put it all the way, way, way back in the file folder of my brain as a cool idea. Uh, so in, I think it was probably the first company I checked out when we circled back uh, with Companion Maze with my cleaning company. Um, after checking out a few, I wasn't that like, excited about any of these options hmm. uh, and none of them were like oh my goodness this is the one and i realized that part of the reason for that is because none were all, were all that specific to cleaning companies like niching to service cleaning companies right. so uh at that time i i had a lot of uh sort of uh, goodwill built up in the cleaning business community i was one of like the most frequent posters and such, uh, you know, forums and stuff. The Facebook group was growing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so to make a long story short, I uh, thought maybe we could reverse engineer this. Uh, so I called one other guy that started his cleaning company at the same time as me. He said no. Second guy I called, 10 minute conversation and he was in. Uh, and so two months after that, uh, we launched on January 1st of 2015. Mm. January 1st. That's a good time to start. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you, you launched, you launched a uh, Vicky virtual. Tell us a little bit about what that platform looked like, what the, what the business model looked like. What was your day to day? So the day to day, uh, it, it evolved over time, right? After the business sort of went through the different uh, stages. Um, but initially, you know, my partner and I had uh, different duties. His main thing was to uh, do a lot of content marketing uh, as well as putting together some of our, like, some of the more tedious uh, documents for the company, such as not legal stuff, but stuff like our employee handbook, the original one, uh, writing up some training and, and, and stuff like that. Um, my like sort of overall role was to uh, handle sales, uh, handle sort of the structuring and putting together systems as far as the business uh, and sort of modeling what our future was going to be like. 
in terms of, you know, how we're spending our money, uh, what our goals are and, and trying to get there. Right. Um, and then, you know, I took all the sales calls and that type of deal. And it was a, it was a, a good partnership. Uh, you know, it lasted for about a year and a half. Uh, and you know, the crazy thing is that, uh, his name's Micah. I never met him in person to this day. We were, <laughs> yeah. It's crazy, right? It is uh, crazy. But yeah, we built a six figure company first year. And by the time, uh, I bought him out in, uh, I think it was the end of May 2016, we were already, you know, well over 10 grand a month in profit. Okay, so first and foremost, that's incredible, number one, and congratulations for you to reaching that point. Why did you buy out your partner? Can you you expound upon that? Yeah, um, you know, I I can't say too much, but the reality is that uh, I liked the business more than he did. He didn't really like employees. Got Um, it. And so, you know, from that, we worked out a deal. It was pretty quick, uh, but I was happy to do it. Uh, you know, I was, I was loving the business. I was having fun. Um, and frankly, when I bought him out and assumed 100% control, uh, that with, you know, companion made doing his thing. Uh, also, Rentobo, the software company, it got acquired in 2016, uh, seven-figure acquisition. And so that was the catalyst that made me decide, okay, it's time for me to step up. And that's actually when I finally went and moved out of that $350 a month apartment. <laughs> and and so uh, can you believe what, what, what kind, of, held what kind of residence do you have now? I held out for a very, very, very long time. Uh, you know, just a high rise apartment in Chicago, overlooking the Ferris wheel, that type of deal. Yeah, you know, just a penthouse, panoramic views, you know, nothing serious. <laughs> Nothing crazy. <laughs> Don't have a no mile long driveway just yet. Okay, not yet, but but it's on the way. And and you've got a couple projects that are I'm positive are going to get you there. Uh, talk about what you're doing right now. You're, you're working with uh, call center cash. Uh, can you expand upon that a little bit? Yeah. So you know, eventually uh, we were able to grow Vicky Virtual, and it got acquired uh, October of last year. Um. And that was nice. Honestly, it was a, a, a pretty surreal moment because it was uh, my fourth acquisition, which even to this day, it sounds really crazy to say something yeah, like that. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does, Donald. <laughs> that sounds Man. absolutely insane. Your fourth acquisition. I feel like you could yeah. write a book on that. I don't mean to cut you off. Like, you could really, like, because there's a science to that because you obviously have some sort of a... Uh, some sort of a philosophy or an idea that you're able to execute time and time again uh, to get yourself to the acquired. And it's not like people are paying a hundred bucks for the right. company. You know, these are six, seven figure deals, uh, you know, without getting it all into the details, but I'm sure they're lucrative acquisitions. Right. Right. And, you know, I, I think um, it, it came down to a few simple things. What I wanted to say earlier, actually, was my my main sort of experience and and uh, and involvement uh, from 2012 to 2020 was my first goal was to simply be a full time entrepreneur, and what that really meant was have control of time and money, and not have it be through something unstable like poker, but through an actual business venture. Right. 
Um, the second goal, like once that was achieved, mm-hmm. the second goal was, okay, I want to make six figures. Because now I feel like six figures is the start of success uh, in terms of, you know, working for yourself as a business owner. Um, the third goal was really, and it, you know, came to a head in 2017. I had five projects going simultaneously. I was throwing a bunch of darts at the wall. I was trying to, mm-hmm. you know, start all kinds of things and, and really seeing what I would like the most, uh, mm-hmm. which really would have been a reflection of, you know, who I am maybe from a, an operational perspective, uh, what I gravitate towards in terms of the work I like to do when I'm working on something, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Vicky Virtual was the best fit for that. And so uh, the culmination of, of having that be acquired, uh, and it was an unsolicited offer. I thought I'd be running the business for 20, 30 years and pass it down to kids that aren't born yet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was really your mindset. You thought you were going to be doing that like for a really long time. I thought I was because, you know, I was only working five, six hours a week anyway. Um, and so, you know, it's a, a, like wow. an awesome business. Um, you know, I had automated it a lot and it's just, I mean, there was no reason. I, I used to just on a daily basis talk to people about how much better a virtual receptionist company was in terms of the attributes of the business than other businesses. I, you know, the in in general, my initial goal again was simply to, be an entrepreneur and, and business owner mm-hmm. but the reality is that business ownership is a spectrum wider than the job world itself um and so your experience yeah depending on the business you're running it can be completely miserable or completely incredible uh and so it mm-hmm. wasn't just about having a business it was about having a business that would be a catalyst for the life i wanted right yeah and so selling Vicky Virtual is a combination of a lot of things. And so now the involvement is like, okay, well, now I want to focus less on creating businesses for the purpose of personal income and more on like investing, investing and, and, and leveraging capital. Um, but in between, um, you know, I did have, I did discover that there's this wide open market in terms of uh, virtual receptionist companies and the small amount of people that even know what a virtual receptionist company is in the first place. Yeah. And so with e-learning being a, a huge thing, a friend of mine did 10 million in courses last year. Um, what, $10 really, million dollars in, in revenue? Yeah, yeah. With, with, with the type of business model you're working with? Yeah, it's sort of crazy. In fact, oh I know uh, four people that did a million in June. It, with your business model, a million dollars? Yeah. In with, revenue? Uh, in a month? Yeah. In June. In June 2020, during oh. COVID. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, oh, man. This is uh, all I can do is laugh right now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so I knew it would be lucrative, but the fact is, um, you know, it's a this course that I created on how to start a uh, virtual receptionist company like Vicky Virtual, that model, there isn't a course like that that exists at all. And what that means is that no one's talking about it, right? It's a giant uh, potential industry. The answer and service market is $2.9 billion currently. 
but most answering services aren't very helpful and businesses don't actually like them. Uh, and so the virtual receptionist angle on answering, on call answering, is the thing, it's the type of service that businesses actually like, mm. but they're just not aware that it exists as a service option, right? And so again, there's the opportunity. And the, the only way to really capture that is, yeah, there's certain numbers of companies, which there aren't many right now, but there need to be entrepreneurs that are going out there and exploiting that. And so, uh, you know, the goal with call center cash, which is the name of the course, is to empower uh, entrepreneurs to discover that like I did, as well as pursue those companies in that space to be able to capture that emerging market. It's freaking amazing. It's freaking amazing. You are the absolute real deal, uh, holy field for sure. And that was corny to say, but that's the first thing that came to my mind. Like uh, that, that's, that's nothing short of incredible. You definitely have the juice. You've reached uh, an, a tremendous platform, uh, and of course, let's 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 get the elephant out of the room here. You know, we're we're both black men here, uh, and you're in an important space, Donald. Like you're an African American guy, you're a multimillionaire. I'm sorry, I had to put it out there. Um, you know, you're <laughs> a successful business guy, serial entrepreneur. Um, you've got an important role to play now. You know, what's some of the challenges that you're dealing with now because you are a black man and now you're dealing in white spaces? You know, how do you navigate? What's next for you? Well, so the big thing is, and, you know, I, I want to I say this too. I, I hate the fact that uh, we're calling it sort of a white space, right? Mm. Uh, like the fact that wealth and prosperity and success is generally considered to be a white space. Uh, there was a lot of times when I was growing up that, you know, if you pursued uh, ways of thinking that were sort of prosperous or engaging in things that were really ambitious, right? There would be certain people, uh, unfortunately, a lot of them black that are like, man, quit trying to go after that white man's dollar. Yeah, I, I've heard that before. You know, I've heard that before that and it yeah. pisses me off uh, because it's not reserved just for them. The system exists. Yes. The, 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 the liquidity, so to speak, is in the air, but it's for anybody to take hold of and not just create your own business, but to create your own lifestyle, your own community. That's really the, the point of new black society for me personally is mm -hmm. I want a whole society. Like it's, enough, like, it's not enough for me to just have a business. It's not enough for me to own my own house. It's not enough for me mm -hmm. to have my, you know, my own thing, my own family. Okay, I'm doing that. What I want is a society of forward-thinking entrepreneurs, a society of forward-thinking community leaders, uh, you know, high-level professionals putting together uh, sort of an economy where we can exist to where we're not so much dependent on, you know, to, I'm going to say it plainly, white people to fucking feed us. Yeah, and you know what? I, 
when when I saw that premise for this episode, that's why I was so happy to hop on, because I have the the exact same thoughts about this, which is essentially when you have when you think about all of the different groups ethnic groups in this country, right? Mm -hmm. You have white people that obviously are uh, very advantageous and, and privileged. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have other minority groups, people of color, and then you have African Americans. Well, for right. white people, that goes without saying, you know, they have their stuff, they have their institution, they have their power. For people of color that aren't African American, they may not have the same level of, you know, uh, median wealth average wealth but they do have their heritage they have their traditions they have their identities they have their sense of community and oftentimes they also have their institution so if you think about the you know hispanic latino community latinx uh if you think about the, the jewish community even uh even africans right that aren't african-american they know their last names they, they do are, you know they're able to uh sort of uh, solicit their specific thoughts that are owned by people within their own race and ethnicity. And yeah. so what happens is that they're able to take their dollar, they take in a dollar, they earn a dollar, mm -hmm. and then they spend it within the community and it bounces within their community before it leaves their community. Right. Now for African-Americans, we're the only ones that don't have, we don't know what our long-standing identity is because it was stripped away not over the course of one generation but as most people would agree over the course of centuries and so we don't know our last name we don't know our uh, full heritage we don't have the preserved tradition from you know uh, hundreds of thousands of years ago and so we're essentially a bunch of isolated individuals that exist in the US that are told to have this strong sense of community, which is impossible. It is. No, I, I, I can't I can't agree with you more. Uh, please continue. <laughs> yeah, it, it's too early. And so in the formation of the communities and buildings and institutions that led us to present day America in 2020, we're really the only community that has communities but that doesn't own anything within those community. We have our uh, different places that we go to to shop, to you know, send our kids to school, to, to bank, to fulfill our uh, you know, citizen duties, but we don't own any of those institutions. And so what happens is that if you have a different you know, group of color, people of color group, such mm -hmm. as for instance, uh, even like Mexicans, or really, I grew up with a bunch of Jewish people. So let's say Jewish people, right? If a white person, uh, you know, uh, like an Anglo-Saxon white person, Christian goes up to a Jewish person and calls them some type of slur, well, the mm -hmm. Jewish person in general can bounce that off. Why? Because they are not disenfranchised by, uh, you know, Christian white people. Mm. But black people, we have the slurs, as well as institutions that disenfranchise us. And so the thing that I think inevitably will happen, hopefully sooner rather than later, is that there'll be more and more people like us that are starting to realize, one, what needs to be done, and two, are putting ourselves in position where we can start to form our own institutions. 
And when we form our own institutions, Black people start to have choices from people within their community. And once that happens and we sort of cover the whole spectrum in that regard, we can no longer be disenfranchised and racism won't really affect us much anymore. Listen, I can't agree with you more on that one. I mean, this is something that I say all the time, you know, uh, I, I said today, uh, you know, tell me how many Fortune 1000 companies were running because uh, ownership is a big problem. You, you mentioned last name. Let's talk about language. You know, we're people right. of African descent. We speak Eurocentric languages. We're people mm -hmm. of African descent, but we have European sounding last names. Mm -hmm. uh, we aspire to go to schools that are in white neighborhoods, white communities, go to colleges mm -hmm. in white neighborhoods and white communities to get jobs in traditionally owned white institutions and bank and traditionally white owned banks. Uh, and it's just a constant cycle. So, you know, what companies are we running? What states are we governing? What laws are we controlling or formulating or passing? Uh, what about economic policy? Do we have any type of governance or equity there? Uh, what, what about the education system? Do we say what we're educated about or marketed or what's reported on the news? Um, we have very little control over this. And this is, uh, it, it gnaws at my skull uh, every single time that, you know, I look on the news and I see different stories. I'm a big believer that entrepreneurship is the first uh, course in terms of changing that spectrum. Because once you can control, it's not so much having money as much as it is having wealth which I think is a big difference, which I know you and I both know because we read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and maybe you might've read the cash flow quadrant. Mm -hmm. But I think wealth is the most important thing that we've got to get um, as African-Americans. And I'm going to tell you why, Donald, because, you know, mm -hmm. the one thing that, that, that just boiled my blood was, you know, the mall started opening up. The big mall over here, I know in... Uh, Chicago, is it the Galleria? That's the big mall? Is that the main, uh, or is that, am I thinking Houston? Yeah, Houston's um, the Galleria. Houston's uh, the Galleria. What's the big mall in Chicago downtown? Well, the, the downtown is uh, Marshall Fields. Marshall Fields. Water Tower. Right, right. So, so over here in Philly, we got King of Prussia, and that's the major mall. And it just opened up yesterday. And uh, I tell you what, I stopped by there is like a long club, like, like think of the nightclub mm -hmm. and, you know, people just around the corner, they're waiting to get in line to spend their money at the Gucci store. Right. And they're all black. Yeah. Like, dude, this has got to stop. <laughs> this has got to stop. Like, uh, and I don't even know what to say to them except to shake my head. You know, the thing is, I, I was actually telling someone this today. So I live, like, Michigan Avenue is our big street, right? The Magnificent yeah. Mile. And along Michigan Avenue, there's all the stores. Uh, Burberry, you know, Chanel, YSL, like everything. Mm -hmm. And outside all of those stores, there's lines. And they're, like, all black people. Yeah. Consumers. I, I couldn't believe it. I, I, I couldn't believe it. Because, you, you know, when you drive down Michigan in, throughout time pre-COVID, you're not, like, seeing into the store to see what the demographic is for people that are sort of scrambling to, to get in line, right? right? 
Uh, and so seeing that, like literally every single day, there'll be a line at least 15 people deep and we're talking 12 of them are uh, black people. And, you know, oftentimes they're black people that don't seem like they're wealthy. Well, well, I know they're not. You know, I'm just gonna say, <laughs> seem like no, I know they're not. It's it's just, you know, and I hate the stereotype, uh, and I don't want to come off as holier than thou. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm not a I'm not a label guy at all. I just you know, if it looks good and it, it's high quality, it's good quality, it's gonna last me. I'm gonna get it. But mm-hmm. um, I just you know, I'm always trying to find the bargains when it comes to that type of stuff, but. I think that there has to be a shift, Donald. There has to be a shift in how we're thinking because people don't understand that, you know, this COVID thing could last a lot longer than what we think. And it could change the way we look at business. It could change the way we look at, you know, how we put our communities together. Do you think it makes sense to have a nation state like, like by like Singapore or something <laughs> like that. Do you think that's do you think that's possible? You know, I'm not even sure if I necessarily want that. Um, maybe I, like who knows? Maybe we do need like a U.S. Wakanda or something. But, we we uh, do. <laughs> I think um, so. <laughs> <laughs> now I really see why you got the podcast, but um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know that it needs to go that far, but I do know that, and the reason why I think it's frustrating to both of us in terms of lines outside of designer stores is that, fine, spend your money, but we're not spending our money in ways that enrich our own community. That's right. We're we're enriching the wrong community. If we had designer stores that were owned by black people and it was, you know, circling back, uh, recirculating into our own community, then it would be, you know, not, ideal, especially for the individual that can't afford it, but it would certainly at least help in the long run, but we're just literally just, we're staying at the bottom because of it. Yes, because once you spend that money and you have that Gucci belt, you don't have that money anymore. You've given it away. And, and yeah. I, you know, I don't even like to use the word spend because I like to use the word circulate just be, well for myself personally i always tell everybody in my family use circulate when you talk about money because we want it to circulate back into this family like i want to mm-hmm. drive home the idea of what wealth is what wealth looks like so mm-hmm. you know part of my like part of my whole you know the whole media behind new black society is explaining our relationship as african americans with wealth because at one point we were the wholesale. We were the, the labor. We are the, the engine behind what makes wealth work. And we've got to get from under that because if we don't, we're going to be stuck there forever. We're going yeah. to be stuck there forever. And I'm not completely certain, like you said, what it looks like, but I do know that there has to be a black community where we're able to govern ourselves set the policies and also benefit from the policies that have been set as a community as a whole well yeah and you know on a a less extreme end you know we need to be in a situation 
or if we have the leverage to uh, sort of force others' hand in terms of things that allow us to really be on equal footing institutionally. Because it's like, well, if you don't do this, then what we have accumulated as our own community is valuable and we'll be able to spend it in a way that no longer benefits your community. And it's to the point where you, you will suffer because of it. Um, and so like, again, if we're having issues and we're like, well, we're not gonna spend the money anymore. So it's like, okay, fine. Where are you gonna spend it? We have nowhere to spend it. So mm -hmm. that's always gonna be a bluff that can be called over and over again. We have no power because we have nowhere to put our resources that will enrich our own community. It's that's always gonna enrich others. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that's so fascinating because I mean, you always talk about the spending power. Oh, blacks have all the spending power, but <laughs> that does having the ability to spend money does not translate into wealth unless you're putting that money into something that's going to get you a return on your investment of some sort. And and right. we've I'm, I'm I'm saying for people listening, and I know there's going to be a lot of people listening. You got to get your mind centered around wealth. You get your mind centered around. It's a mind state. It it really is a mind state. And and although I'm not where you are yet, yet, and that's a big Y E T yet, I will <laughs> definitely say that you know the trajectory and, and and the foundation is is there. And I would certainly recommend. Um, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, Donald, that you know if, if you want to learn about what wealth is, the best definition that I got was from Rich Dad, Poor Dad. He broke it down in a way in which I never understood. He broke it down in a technical way. Mm -hmm. uh, when he was talking about uh, passive income, portfolio income, mm -hmm. uh, and leveraged income, those are, those are things and that income. we got to get. Yeah, so um, he talked about this in the cash flow quadrant, which is the second book. It's like cash flow right. quadrant is Rich Dad, Poor Dad 2. Right. So that's the, that's how I look at it. Rich Dad Poor Dad the sequel, and he breaks down what wealth is, and it's basically he gave this example. You know, take all your money out of the bank, right? Make a make a huge uh, withdrawal, not deposit mm -hmm. withdrawal. Everything you got in your checking, your saving, make a withdrawal. Go on vacation. Come back two months later. Look in your bank account. If it's still at zero, you have no wealth. You have no, mm. you have no wealth. If there's something in there, though, if there's more money that came in there while you were away, then that means you have an asset. You have an asset that's getting you passive wealth or passive income, portfolio income, leveraged income. Mm -hmm. Somebody, like, he, he breaks it down that way. And I got the best definition that I ever got in terms of wealth. And listen, I, I'm, I'm going to be breaking it down for like the next year on New Black <laughs> Society. Listen, you tune in. You tune in. But we've got to get this. We got to get it right. Because now we're entering into a new age, I believe, Donald. We're going from the um, information age, and now we're veering into the conceptual age. And yeah. the conceptual age is different from the information. It's not just about having access to the internet. It's about the ability to have an idea 
create that idea, execute, and then leverage. And it mm -hmm. can rapidly change your whole quality of life. Like, mm -hmm. just like you say, you start a podcast, 50 likes, I'll do it. Boom. We did this last night. You, what did you do? You bought the domain. You, I'm sure the podcast will be up and running next week at the latest. Yeah. We'll, we'll and, you, you, know, yeah you already I, got you, two lined up. Yeah. Got two lined up during the first interview tomorrow. Uh, you know, when you are able to sort of like learn the skills in terms of being able to execute things quickly. And the tools we have today are incredible. When yeah. I started college uh, in 2003, the tools that exist that I use today, practically none of them existed back then. Right. Uh, arguably the only thing that existed, Facebook technically existed, but it was, you know, it, they hadn't even let Wisconsin in yet. And, um, and I think WordPress existed as a, like a very simple light blogging platform. But outside yeah. of those two things, nothing existed that I now use on a daily basis. Um, and so these tools make things quicker, they make things uh, cheaper, uh, and they enable you to try more things while taking less risk in doing so, and less time in doing so. So, Absolutely. you know, and, and it's just incredible. So we're in a situation where, you know, we need to spread as far and wide as we can uh, two things. One, especially, you know, in terms of black people. One, you have the ability to learn what you need to learn at any time in order to start to take control, have skills to take control of your at least financial destiny. That's mm -hmm. one. And two, when you spend money, you need to start to try to spend money or help create ways so that we can spend money in ways that are bouncing inside the African-American community before they leave it. Because if they bounce within our community, then the community is enriched. And when the community is enriched, we are no longer disenfranchised. Mm -hmm. No, that's, that's a word right there. That's a word. I'm going to, I'm sending over the virtual collection plate, <laughs> right? <laughs> no, that, that, that's a word. That's a word. I think that pretty much sums up everything that I wanted to, you know, this podcast to be. You are the, you are the perfect guest, man. I, I'm so blessed to have uh, people like you in my circle. Donald, man, I know you, you're, you're moving on to the next. Uh, I know you have a busy night. Uh, I'm sure you got more <laughs> conference calls on the way. You know, you hang in there, man. Get some coffee. You know, do what you got to <laughs> do. <laughs> but I appreciate you being on the New Black Society podcast. I look forward to talking to you soon, man. Take care. Yeah, man. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening to the New Black Society podcast with Nate Wilson. You can subscribe to this podcast on any platform podcast play. See you next time.